Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Gara, thank you so much for joining me today, man. My pleasure, Dan. Glad to be here. We are like the closest thing you can possibly be to friends without being friends. <laughs> we have texted and emailed. We have almost worked together. We have a couple very close mutual friends. And we've hung out in person. 
but we're not yet friends. Maybe, I mean, we, I don't want to put too much I mean, pressure on today, but. This could be the day. This could be it. I mean, we're on a knife's edge, so we could. <laughs> it could also be the day that ensures That's that we true. won't become friends. Yeah. Depending on how uh, argumentative I get. So you you have been a proper CCM artist in your, I guess, what, most of your solo career performing as John Guerra? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. The first, yeah, the first few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things that I want to do is kind of walk through that and your transition now to something closer to a general market indie musician with uh, faith leanings or, you know, in, in terms of musical faith yeah. leanings. But let's start even before that. So give us a little bit about your your faith background. I know you're at your parents' house right now in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where you grew up. Wheaton yep. is the home of Wheaton College, Wheaton University, Wheaton Bible College. What's it Wheaton called? Wheaton College, yeah, Wheaton, Wheaton College, College. Which is like the Stanford of evangelicalism, maybe? <laughs> right. Something like that? Totally. It's a yeah. bastion. Billy, Billy Graham, yeah, Billy Graham walked the hallowed halls of Wheaton College. So, and there's a Billy Graham Center, in fact, where I practiced my alling over a five stair. And I, I actually executed that. So I truly grew up in the epicenter of evangelicalism, but, but with an asterisk, the asterisk being, I'm a son of two immigrants. So my dad is from Cuba. My mom is from Argentina. None of my grandparents spoke English or speak English, the ones who are living and my dad has been a pastor to lower class, poor migrant workers my entire life, many of whom I discovered when I was a teenager were illegal Mexican immigrants. So that part of the story feels important to me more and more as I grow up, just you know, feeling both in the epicenter of evangelicalism in a lot of ways, because where music has taken me and where even where I felt maybe God nudging me when I was younger, despite not wanting to, you know, lead worship at churches or whatever that always kept popping up. And I always felt like I should say yes and do this. And, and that, but then also feeling like an outsider. Cause you know, uh, one of my lyrics to a band that I'm no, you know, I'm no longer in was a uh, citizen with an immigrant face and just sort of kind of always felt, felt that way for better, for worse, you know? Yeah, as I'm thinking about what I imagine <laughs> what I imagine it might be like to have witnessed what has happened in evangelicalism over the last let's say 6 years with that background, immigrant parents, dad pastoring to lower class migrants, that the kind of front row seat you have to the heartbreak of like, you know, the the sort of emotional front row seat of totally. of that just completely inexcusable objective hypocrisy <laughs> in that world. I mean, I mean, of, of all the issues, you know, fine, say what you want about abortion and we're going to get, we're going to get to all this, but like the refugee immigrant one is like, is just the truest colors yeah. of the worst parts of that sort of on display yeah. in a heartbreaking way. And, and, you know, for me, that's mostly intellectual. It's a, it's an abstract thing. That still yeah. hurts me in some way because it's sure. important to me, but it's not part of my story in that sense. Yeah, totally. I think you're describing a lot of things that I didn't have words for, for a big chunk of at least 
late teens, early twenties, kind of being, uh, emotionally, yeah, just uh, emotionally kind of aware of some of those dynamics. And, um, especially with, with my parents, cause I, even as small as my parents both have accents, you know, and I, I don't. So it, it was a lot easier for me to kind of assimilate and to kind of blend in than it was for them. And uh, not really knowing exactly how to, yeah, what to do with all that, you know, when you kind of grow up seeing them struggle and maybe being aware of the prejudice and it not coming towards you because you can speak a little differently. And because, I, I don't know, it's just, there's a lot of things that you don't, you, you're not, you don't really, you just don't have language for it until you look at it in the face. And usually what you're avoiding is you avoid it, not because it's, it's not real, but because there, it, there's pain there. And um, it took me a while to really want to look that in the eye and, and yeah, it's still, it's still something to unpack. You know, it's not, it's certainly not over. It's certainly, it's, it's a, everybody I think has their own idiosyncratic stories through which everything gets filtered through, you know, faith, God, the gospel, politics, and um, the hardest, it's most easiest to be kind to other people's idiosyncrasies. It's hardest, at least for me, to be to be kind to my own and to, to have patience with my own. So I, I think I'm, I'm still kind of coming to terms with that. And part of my last record, part of my, the song Citizens that we've talked about or are going to talk about is, you know, part of that. It's just kind of me trying to be honest with, with a lot of that stuff. In one sense, you might have actually been less surprised by 2015 and onwards, right? If you, if you did have that experience previously of like recognizing difference between the way that you were treated and your parents were treated with their accents and, and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But at the same time, as you're saying, if you had sort of avoided dwelling on it, then you might not have, I'm, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. We haven't laid much of the groundwork here, but I, I have to follow up on that. Totally. You know, I think I was, I was actually quite surprised and, Probably to my shame, like maybe I should have been a little bit more. My natural disposition is to be, I think, rebellious, is to be kind of like, you know, the, the Christian-y way was always, you know, in high school, my my kind youth leaders would see that, like, you just have a prophetic streak. You know, you just say what, you know, and it's really just like, I like to cuss and to use <laughs> Bible verses to say why I cussing is, you know, it's like, I was just kind yeah. of a, a jerk. I don't relate to that at all, John. <laughs> I don't know so what you're I talking think, about, man. <laughs> I mean, I, and so as kind of a corrective of, of that, I really tried to go out of my way, you know, after maybe some, some heartbreak in college and just sort of some like, my gosh, I've hurt a lot of people by how much of a jerk I've been. I swung it the other direction and I really tried to, you know, as best as I could imagine a story as to why people are the way they are, why they vote the way they they vote, why they worship the way they worship and try to only see them by that grid. And, you know, normally that's, that's a, I think that's a better way to be than only focusing on the negative. Um, sure. Not that I was perfect at it, but that was like, okay, if I could try to do this. So I think I, I swung it so far that I, you know, I just, I just didn't kind of see maybe some of what was just blatantly in front of me for a long time. And I think that's why it kind of hit me so hard around, around the election of five years ago. Yeah, I was a part of a church that, um, whose pastor joined the evangelical, uh, Trump's evangelical board of, you know, whatever that was, I forget what it's called, but our pastor joined that. And my wife, who's a social worker in Chicago, of all places, who wow. 
yeah, she's given her life to basically doing music therapy with kids in uh, who have experienced trauma in the inner city. And it, you just get rewired when you live in a poor neighborhood in, in Chicago. And so it, so it was just very shocking for us. And, uh, and yeah, it was, I, I wish I'd have been less surprised, but I was, I think, I think I was a little bit extra surprised. Well, I, I'm excited to unpack some of that. Let's get a little bit more background. So you grew up in Wheaton to an immigrant yep. Christian family, like a ministry family, PK. Mm-hmm. And you get into music, how? I'm an only child, and my family moved summer before my seventh grade year. And so I had no friends, and my mom thought I should send this kid on a church trip so he can make friends. And so she asked me, do you want to go on this missions trip with this new church to make friends? And I said, under no circumstances do I want to go on a missions trip with a bunch of random people in a city (laughs) I've just met. Yeah. So like a week later, I was on the trip. And, uh, <laughs> it was honestly, it was actually, it was, it was kind of amazing. And, um, night three, it was maybe 10 of us on that trip. Night three, the youth pastor gets up and just like every other youth pastor or worship leader in the late nineties, pulled out some chord charts and started singing praise songs. I was looking around and the kids were kind of putting their hands up and some kids were praying. And I thought, well, this is like super lame until like song two or three when I really don't know how else to describe it, but it really, it's like, you know, the room was not the room. And I had an experience of God that I, to be completely frank, I feel like I'm still kind of running after. And I'm still, when I think about that time, sometimes I, time has passed. It was very bizarre. And for me, it suddenly felt like, I, I, I felt like I was being watched or something or perceived. I was like, you know, suddenly just was like, what's going on here? And the music suddenly came alive to me. And, and I, you know, by the end of the trip, my hands were in the air and I was closing my eyes and I went up to the youth pastor at the end of that trip. And I was like, what, what are these sheets that you kept reading off of, you know, these words with these letters on top? He's like, Oh, those are chords. Do you want them? So I just took these chord sheets home, went to guitar center when I got home, picked up a chord book and my mom had a guitar in the basement. And uh, from that point on, just all free time went to music And, you know, I, I was very shy about that story for a long time. I mean, it, yeah, I think it was an experience of God. I don't know what else to to call it. I felt like an overwhelming sense of, uh, yeah, of being seen, of being cherished or something, of being loved. Sounds like the beginning of a vocational call to me. I mean, what we would normally think of as vocation, right? A a kind of spiritual vocation. Totally. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of, I think how it's shaked out in my life. I think even what I'm trying to do with music now is basically trying to facilitate, if anything, trying to, the, the secondary, I would say, is trying to facilitate those kinds of experiences for people. But primary, it's basically trying to claw my way back to that room, that dingy basement in Michigan where mm. I felt incredibly seen and loved. So the natural thing was to eventually end up as a contemporary Christian music artist <laughs> on a Christian label. Uh, how, how did we get, how did we get there? What happened? And how old were you when you signed your first deal? Um, I was 25, maybe 24, 25. The record came out or something. Leading worship through school was in bands. I went to Bible school for college, studied historical theology. And after school, I, again, was in more bands doing maybe doing like indie music, our mutual friend, Josh, 
likes to make fun of that band just vehemently. I mean, it was like, and, and it was, it was very, it, it was like seven minute songs. We'd go into like a gypsy jazz break halfway through. There was, it was very formless. It was very avant-garde. It was very yeah. beautiful. I loved it, but it was just not commercial in any way. Yeah. And then I got invited to, uh, through a friend of a friend, I got invited to a songwriter's retreat, which I didn't even know was a thing for this church in Chicago that was trying to write worship songs for their church. And it was a big church. And he said he'd pay me a couple hundred bucks to come on these two days. And I, at that point, would do anything for money for music with music, yeah, you know, it was like, and I went and on that trip, I, I thought, okay, what would a, you know, what would a church do? And I thought, okay, it's probably traditional songs. And I just put on whatever that hat was. I'm like, let me just see what, and the first, you know, I wrote like three songs that ended up being really important to that church. And then a label heard one of those songs. And two years later I was signed. Wow. It was very kind of, kind of, and kind of a surprise, like, Oh, so if I, if I just think, what would a church want to sing that's this big and they do this kind of music on Sundays? Okay, let me try to approximate that and let me try to say things that feel honest to me but still feel accessible. And it was kind of like a fun little experiment that I just never tried before and it ended up working really well for the label. And they were kind of like, you know, how many songs? I'm like, I've got three songs like this. I've got, you know, a crap ton of gypsy jazz, seven minute slow jams, you know, but... Like, well, let's get more where the, where the, you know, those three songs came from. And then that was my record. So a couple of years after that, I, yeah, got signed and released a record and toured with the biggest names in CCM, you know, David Crowder, Mercy Me, Matt Marr. So that first record was a congregational worship record. I mean, that, that's what you were doing. A, you were doing a uh, Chris Tomlin record kind of a thing. Um, it was a little bit more, uh, honestly, it was a little bit more CCM. There was a couple congregational worship songs on there, but the label, you know, once they heard those few songs that I'd written, they're like, cause la Christian labels these days, they make their money on radio. Hmm. So it was kind of like, Oh, have you ever tried writing a radio single? I was like, no, but I'd love to try, you know, another, another sort of creative experiment, just like writing a congregational worship song. Totally. Totally. And I thought, why not? And so they put me in rooms with all the kind of hit makers of Christian music and they're very sweet people and really good at what they do. And we tried to write a bunch of songs and the record just didn't take and the singles didn't take, but it was kind of a very quick ride. You know, it was like, whoa, this just keeps working and doors just keep opening and yeah, whoa, this is a label and I'm getting signed and I'm, you know, yeah, it was a, it was fun. I mean, who doesn't like the red carpet being kind of rolled out? Oh yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember in our label courting days in Sherwood, you know, which, which wouldn't happen very often, you know, every two, like we ended up being on two labels. So it happened two times basically in our eight year career, but oh gosh, after sleeping on, well, we, we had a little less glamorous touring situation than you had, but uh, <laughs> after, you know, living in a van and, playing to 40 people a night for like a couple days in LA to have like these legitimate adults who are driving BMWs, taking you to dinner <laughs> uh, is like, I mean, it, it is a kind of a shock and awe campaign. It's designed that way, of course, because they have, <laughs> they have incentives for all of that, but yeah, it's, it's really something, especially in your early twenties, early mid twenties. Totally. Um, yeah. So I, I really relate to that. Uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think that, 
the backroom songwriting, aiming for a hit thing is something that both you and I have experienced that very few people have experienced. And people really yeah. have very little idea what that's like. Yeah. And you said, you know, these are, these are wonderful people. And, and I've done a lot of this co-writing as well. Uh, most of it was for the, the final Sherwood record. Uh, but I also did co-writing for Pacific Gold record, which is a, a project I did cool. sort of in between, which was less, less looking for a radio hit, but still a lot of this co-writing stuff. But I, I've only done a little bit with Christian writers, and I've never really, never really tried to write one of those songs. What are the like? Give us a little, a little insight. Like, what are the rules if you're trying to write a CCM radio hit? What are the guidelines? What are the boundaries within you've got, but within which you've got to stay? Well, this phrase kind of popped up quite a bit, at least five six years ago when I was really kind of running in those circles. Was like. Uh, a CCM radio song is essentially, it's a pop song with a country lyric about mm. Christianity. Unpack so it's not that. about, so it it's like catchy. Yeah. When you say pop song, you mean it's, it's three to three and a half minutes. It has verse, yes. chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Accessible, traditional yes. form. Yeah. It is usually mid-tempo to up-tempo. Right. Um, if it's a ballad, it better be like about a dead spouse or something super, you know, it better be she stopped people, loving him today, you know, totally, something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then country lyric, meaning it's, it's very earthy, you know, it's very about stuff, you know, about it's basically just, a just down working, to earth. Class, working class lyric in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. But, but the stuff that it's about is, is about Christianity. It's, a, it's about the culture of Christianity. Like I'm not mm-hmm. sure even how else to, so many songs are, or either about being at church, going to church, or right. you know, one of the biggest songs of the last was this Casting Crowns jam. If we are the body, it's it's like a song like, "Hey Christian, like listen up, like hmm. let me tell you something." Again, in in theory, not bad, but it, it's just it's it's a very nichey thing. Yeah, and it's actually there's no. What I found is it until really like. I would say even a few months ago, it's it's really just kind of like no minor keys, you know. Right. Very uh not not a huge amount of dissonance or tension or musical interestingness. Um, <laughs> not that it's not pretty or catchy or cool. Yeah, like it could these still songs be beautiful. Are, it, yeah. And they're truly amazing with with the limitations. It's like that that's what I felt so amazed by is um some of these writers, they just it's like it, it's like probably the thing that Oh, who's the guy that wrote White Christmas? Bing Crosby? Mm, no, but another one of those guys, he wrote like so many, he's like this oh, Jewish guy who didn't Irving, believe in God. Uh, Irving, Irving Berlin. Yes, there we go. He could only play in the key of C. You wow. know, he could, uh, so he had a piano built for him so that he could, with a latch, transpose the different keys because he only had four chords, just triad. And he wrote, you know, uh, The Way You Look Tonight, White Christmas, Let It Snow, Basically every hit for like 20 years. Yeah. You just, you know, and there's people like that writing Christian music and they're very, they have that crazy thing. Um, I would love to, I don't know when this would ever happen in terms of, it would be a good use of my time because it would be, it would almost definitely fail, but I would love to someday spend a month just trying to write uh, Christian radio hits, you know, with the best in the biz. It just sounds like a creatively such a fun uh, project one thing you said that's interesting, it's about churchy stuff. It's about like, 
It's earthy. It's about the kind of thing that Christians do and think and talk about. And that reminds me of something that came up uh, in an episode last fall around Christian film. And I had sort of figured that what was really important to sort of like, you know, your rank and file evangelical pure flicks subscriber was that they had a film that spoke to them in terms of its message. And one of the things that was brought up by the producer of the film and the writer was, you know, actually they said, I think that people just like to see themselves on screen. And so you always have Mm. characters in those films who are, you know, salt of the earth, evangelical, middle-aged people who play an important role, you know, in, in the character's life. And that's how the people in the, in the audience see themselves. And then they, and I thought about this, you know, I love seeing, I love seeing myself on film as well. The other day I was looking up uh, old videos, anything I could find that had like warp tour mid two thousands as a setting. (laughs) And I found this pretty bad documentary and nice. I, but I just wanted to like relive a, a place that I had been a part of, mm. you know? And so it was interesting for that reason alone. And that's where my mind went when you were talking about the, the topic here that it's, yeah. I, I would have thought, oh, well, a Christian song just needs to be like based on scripture or theologically something, or it, it's, it's the act of praise, but actually it could just be like stuff we think and talk about language we use and we hear it projected we see we hear a mirror on our own subculture when we turn on christian radio which is frankly a little like i relate to it but it's also kind of unflattering description of (laughs) of the of the you know the audience totally i mean no we are i yeah what is there to say besides amen to that i think we are it's it's a kind of narcissism but it's also a kind of you know, art has kind of maybe always been a little bit yeah. of a mirror. Yeah, I mean, th- you think about like you know farcical like, plays in the Middle Ages, where the the jester yeah. is playing the king, but then the other character is playing the peasant, and there's a there's yeah. a release in seeing oneself as the peasant in the in the royal court totally. that one time a year or whatever. It's like, or you know, whatever Shakespeare. I mean, there are characters that totally. are audience avatars in Greek plays from 2,400 years ago. Right. Uh, so it's not, yeah, it's yeah. very human. Um, and it, it's just a very different totally. way of thinking about it. It's not the way I was told to think about it. I was told to think about it. It's holy. Right. You know, it's it's about God. So that's what makes it mm. Christian. And other music is not about God. Other music is about, oh, people and their sinful desires and like they're going to party. But actually <laughs> this music is also about people and whatever they happen to be, you know, maybe they're not that different. Right. Totally, man. Totally. I think, I think the beef that people take that is a good beef with at least the industry of Christian music is the tagline for, for, for K-Love, you know, which is the biggest radio, uh, Christian radio station in the world. It's positive, encouraging K-Love. So it's, and this is something, hard not to get riled up talking about this, but I, it, it's sort of like the Thomas Kincaiding yes. yeah. of art by Christians, you know, and as someone who at, at once could have been, could have been confused for, for an emo band. Uh-huh. At, like I, I grew up with that. You know what I mean? It's just like the post nineties, the yeah. punk rock turned into the snow patrol. It's like, there's nothing I 
I really hated more and, and still find so distasteful than just this sliver of life that is very narrow, calling it the whole thing. I know why people do it. You can, we just open the whole thing with why I don't look at my own pain because, you know, I, I get it. But even, you know, the older I get, the more I feel, and now I have a daughter, I feel like I want to give her tools to be able to the full, full gamut of life, you know, both the beautiful parts and the, the not the, the negative, positive and encouraging and the negative yeah. and discouraging, you know, but the criticism obviously is uh, we lobbied at the industry, but the industry is only responding to a need or a demand that mainly evangelicals of now um, middle to late middle age right. have. And that, that need and that want is for positive, encouraging things. Just um, as in politics, it goes back to the voters, you know, in a democracy yeah, and in a free totally, market system totally. with a million entertainment options, it goes to the consumers. I mean, that's basically who calls the shots. Yeah. yeah, And, and to not be, you know, totally, and maybe I, I'm so curious about you, Dan. I, I, it's like, I'm the guest. And you can interview me for a second. You, but I'd be fine. curious. I'll switch it back. Yeah. Soon. Like here's my spectrum. It felt, it, it felt somewhat typical for people in our age range with our leanings, background, whatever you kind of grow up, in church, you're really pumped about it. You're wholeheartedly, you know, buying it all in. And then you, maybe you, you read some books, you, you start to kind of think for yourself and then maybe you start tearing it all apart. But with that comes like an intended cynicism towards even some of the things that maybe are quite beautiful, but you just couldn't see it because you're too busy deconstructing mm-hmm. and kind of like, and really just trying to make sense of your own pain and wounds and it, about your family of origin and your church and, and just plain being human and then at some point, maybe you come out of that and, and you want all the positive things of being a thinking person of faith without the negative cynicism. And then you find yourself, I don't know, maybe starting a podcast or, you know, quitting your label or having a baby or something. And being on, being on this end for me, I, I find it hard to talk about even evangelicals as like those people hmm. over there. I, 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 there's like a check in my spirit um, that I get where does that arc, do you relate what to that at all? What is your question, John? You... I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we can work on those interviewing chops. No, I'm totally joking. Um, that All that resonates with me a lot. <laughs> and yeah, I think people have heard me talk about this a fair amount. But basically, yeah, I'm... Would you describe yourself as a oh, cynical person? I struggle with it. Oh, gosh. I would say I'm more cynical in the last year or so than I... like. I'm more cynical since seeing that everything COVID related became politicized into two camps. That has made me more cynical because you might think that half a million people dying, especially the old and vulnerable people dying. I mean, I, I think it would have actually been in a sense clearer if it was children dying, but there's a real, you know, conservatives are generally the ones who are more concerned with the elderly and sort of multi-generational value, caring for your elders, uh, more likely to live with their elders than the urban liberal, you know, people who put their parents in a home. I'm I'm stereotyping a bit, but I think there's something to that. And it just didn't matter. So I'm more cynical. I hope that yeah. some of that will turn around, but I, I mean, I'm increasingly feeling like there is a deep 
cancerous abscess in the middle of white evangelical culture and worldview that is like, even as someone who's been podcasting about evangelicals and Trump and all that for six years now, seven, six years, I actually feel worse about it now (laughs) than I ever have before. So that part of me is cynical, but the other parts that you're talking about in terms of like not wanting to just deconstruct, not wanting to just sort of like trade in that old naivety for like my new cynical rationalism or whatever. I really resonate with Mm. that. I I sometimes think of it in terms of punk rock as like punk rock. Yeah. I could have followed that instead of Christianity as like a pretty self-contained worldview. And I, I love the lyric in the against me song. I was a teenage anarchist. And at the time, Mm. uh, Tom, the singer now, now she, Laura, but at the time, Tom, he's singing about his time in sort of anarchist sections of punk rock. And there's a break right before the final chorus. I was a teenage anarchist. The revolution was a lie. And he's just bemoaning mm. the, mm. the vapidity, the like, this was not better. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't have more, right. you know, I read, he, I knew all the right authors. I said the right slogans you know, I dressed the part and there's just like a million of those. So there's, you know, there, there's just like all these cheap tribal identities that we can put on. And was I raised with one cheap tribal identity, white evangelicalism that claimed to be a contextual, a historical? Yes, I was. Was it sufficient? It was insufficient. (laughs) Am I now being pitched several other alternatives that are equally insufficient? Yes, I am. And I don't want to buy into any of those either. Nice. So, yeah. y- so it's, yes, that's a long answer to your, to your prompt, but yeah. That's great. No, that's great. And does that make you more or less willing and eager to, to then pick apart and criticize evangelicalism, seeing that it's just one among many? Or does it make, help make you want to like refrain from even... What do you no, do I certainly, with that? I obviously don't refrain. Right. I make a podcast about it every week. It's hard because what's happened at the same time was my increasing interest in psychology. And so I am more likely to think of mm. it in terms of like a individual or group so- psychological or a sociological or even an, an ethnographic lens of like just understanding this group as one group among many on its own terms, you yeah. know, to, to really get it. And so yeah. I don't yeah. know if yeah. that's, yeah. I don't know what the relationship is between how much of it is that, that moving interest away from theology and toward social sciences and how much of it is the lived experience yeah. of, of being so thoroughly disappointed by both what I was at least somewhat raised in and, and many of its alternatives. I can't really untangle those two things. So let's get back to, can I interview again? No, go ahead. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, say what you're yeah. going to say. Yeah. Respond. <laughs> no, I've just, I've just found myself just weary. Same kind of thing. I'm just at the point of, of kind of, I'm weary with the alternatives. You know, I'm weary with any kind of perceived tribalism, any kind of like, yeah. E- even if the people I'm railing against are wrong, I, I, I'm just tired. Yeah. I'm just tired of it for person, like literally like my, my, I just can't, it's almost like I can no longer, it feels almost difficult to engage. Not in this is a great conversation, but I just, in general, when I find myself that kind of thing that's bubbles up 
which is interesting. I mean, just an interesting thing for me to even be self-aware of or mindful of. Well, that's actually a pretty good bridge into talking about the record. It's called Keeper of Days. It is your most recent record. Uh, came out last year, right? And yeah. it's fantastic, man. I had heard oh, some thanks, of your previous records and possibly because of, you know, where they were aimed, wasn't they weren't exactly aimed at me, which is fine. Totally. This record is great. And I've actually talked with a lot of people that love it as well. And I want to talk mm. about at least three individual songs here. And the first one is what I'm saying is a nice bridge. It's called Kingdom of God. It's the first track of the record. And to me, it is such a our time type of a thing because I can imagine conservatives and anybody within the broader sort of Christian music industrial complex being pretty, pretty worried about a song like this and its social or political implications. And yet it is literally just quoting the Bible, which is like the most <laughs> 2020, 2021 thing I think I can imagine. Uh, let me read. There, there are sort of six lines here that are kind of the heart of, of what I'm getting at. Blessed are the poor who have nothing to own. Blessed are the mourners who are crying alone. Blessed are the guilty who have nowhere to go for their hearts have a road to the kingdom of God and their souls are the songs of the kingdom of God and they will find a refuge for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I'll actually, I'm going to play a clip of that uh, so people can hear it because it's so beautiful too. And, and the melody and chord structure is a part of the power but can you talk about that? I mean, that like, do you, did you think what, what I just said, were you like, oh, I know how this is going to go down? Or is that surprising for me to sort of frame it that way? Well, it's only surprising because that's been the most popular song mm. on the record in terms of Christian playlists. Mm. Oh, good. Well, that is just, pleasantly surprising to me. It's, it is surprising, but it also, you know, it hasn't gotten any radio play, which arguably the the radio is still kind of, this yes. old world, maybe evangelicalism and playlists is more, I think the nuns or the, the, the children right. of the evangelicals who are just dissatisfied with. So, so it, it's, you know, it's both and maybe like on the playlists, it might be up, a, up with like a next to a Sufjan track or, or, or something like that. Yeah. It's not, yeah. uh, it's not necessarily next yeah. to casting crowns or whatever. Totally. Though it, it is on some of okay. those playlists too. Like, top the top christian playlist you know so it's but i think the you know i think the fact that it is scripture puts it in a place that um is easier maybe to to swallow i think next to the song citizens which it's the second song on the record it it frames it in terms of like a a challenge but not necessarily like a you know ultimately it's the whole record is is a interior record you know it's like a it's a record to god like there's other songs that were about things but the whole record is to God. And that was kind of like a litmus. Like I wanted every song just to be like a direct address. And that song kingdom of God was like, kind of like a, I guess like a prelude to the record or like a, yeah, like a, like a in, intro statement, you know, Oh, that I could see your face is how the was the first verse. Oh, I'm longing for that day. And then blessed are the poor kind of like, okay, so this is, this is who you say have, access to you or, or this is who you say is is like welcome in your world this is like is this me is this because i don't i don't like some of these i don't like 
you know, in fact, there was, there was some very specific people in my life that I was even with the line, blessed are the guilty who have nowhere to go. It sounds, you know, when you just read it that way, it almost sounds like, oh man, he's being compassionate. But it was actually, I was thinking of some people who had mm. wounded me very deeply and was thinking like, oh my gosh, well, to the degree that they turned that grossness and that evil and that wickedness that I feel like I was severely hurt by, to the degree that they turned that to God, there's actually, there's something in that, in and of itself, that is propelling them towards goodness, towards, and it's, that just seems crazy, but that's true too, you know? It is, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I want to, just briefly on the sort of industry aspect of it, this is something I've been trying to learn about because I, we're recording this four days after I put out my own record, Havana Swim Club record, which is very different. It's, you know, it's like... Uh, mm sample-based indie dance music. But I've been trying to kind of figure out, and I've been interested in like how these editorial playlists work on Spotify and Apple Music and whatnot. And my guess would be that the people who do, for instance, the Christian hits or whatever you want to call it on Spotify, those people do not work for Christian labels. They work for Spotify. And they are probably younger and they probably don't care about you know, whatever the old guards rules are. And so if they like a song and it came out and it's a Christian record and they think it's good, they're going to put it on. And there is a very different set of incentives for them than there is for the K-Love programmer where like all the big sort of industry heavyweights with all their kind of money and influence to throw around, you know, I don't know that that seems like a, a meaningful difference. Totally. I don't know if we I don't know if we need to say Big anything time. more about that. That's maybe most people don't care. Well, yeah, only to say it is a, it, it like streaming is fun yeah. for that reason. It it's exciting for that reason because things can happen that maybe couldn't happen even 5 6 years ago, 10 years ago certainly. There was like a stranglehold, you know, maybe for like in the 2000s I would say, late 90s 2000s where it's like the major labels are everything and then this little Swedish yeah. company Napster, yeah. whatever, but it was like, suddenly there's, it's like people's music yeah. again, you know, and granted they, they don't, they don't pay a ton, but it's, I'm personally fine with it. Like I, people are hearing my music. I'm, you know, making a living, feeding my family and I'm independent and I'm getting playlist promotion on Apple music and on Spotify. And it's amazing. You know, it really is a, it kind of feels like, cool, I made something that these people are into and they're going to play it because they're into it, not just because they're getting paid to play it or something. Yeah, I just looked and, you know, you have 115,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. That's Spotify alone. Could probably guess another mm-hmm. 30, 40 on Apple Music and plus anything else. It's like, that's a lot of people. I mean, you it's hard to, you totally. can only play for that many people if you open up on a stadium tour, basically. Totally. And so it really is, there is a, yeah, it's, it's, it's less clear where you make each little $7, you know, album sale hit or t-shirt sale or whatever, but the reach is just nothing like we had in 2005 or something, you know? And in 2005, you sell a record for 15 bucks, you know, a CD. And now maybe those people over the course of a lifetime, if your music means a lot to them, they actually pay you 30 bucks for just one song. Cause they keep listening to it over and over. You know, it's like, 
I think it does take a long time to get to <laughs> 30 bucks, though. Uh, maybe there are no <laughs> whole person, lot of people. Totally. Who, yeah. But anyway, so but then the other thing you were talking about, that was the business part of it. But the other thing you yeah. were talking about that was interesting is how I read that so differently than what you'd how you described it as like you're sort of begrudgingly admitting that the world that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is the way the world is and that that doesn't actually feel that good to you in this moment. And yet the, as people will have heard, you know, the melody there is, it's very sweet. It's very tender melodically. So I don't know if you were wanting me to think that you were (laughs) upset about it, you know, you didn't really communicate that melodically. I wasn't I wasn't wanting to say I was upset. It was it was more like more like mm. a longing, you know, it was more like a I was wanting to communicate longing through that. Like I want to be this yeah. person, you know, I want I want to but then I'm also when I think about it, I, I'm also kind of and not even upset. I, I would say anger is maybe the first layer, then underneath anger is mm. woundedness, you know, is, is like is like a tenderness. And I wanted to s- always sing and speak from that on the record rather than speaking from some of these maybe more surface yeah. level emotions that, that feel easy to kind of like, you can, if you're angry about something, you can get a crowd, you know, but I just don't think that really heals anybody or anything. And for me trying to live from that place of like tenderness and wounded, especially in my art is kind of scary, but it's always like, I, I'm always more happy that I did than, than, than not. So even that was kind of like, it's it's like bringing like a longing and a, I both want to be this person that I'm also kind of hurt and sad that I like from this vantage point, I can't, I don't have any place to stand about these other people who did this to me. It's like, ultimately my beef is with you, God, if I have a beef. So yeah, that's kind of, I, although there is a little bit of, I would say there's a little bit of anger and maybe in citizens. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to save citizens for last. I want to follow this kind of Sermon on the Mount thread to talk about a track called Prettier Than Solomon. And you do something in this song lyrically that I really resonate with, which is kind of taking what can sometimes feel like platitudes from Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't specifically don't worry what you wear. Don't worry what you'll eat. You're quoting this part. The lyric is, you said the lilies are prettier than Solomon. I don't got to worry about tomorrow. And the little birds, they don't ever work. I don't got to worry about tomorrow. But then you say, even a napalm or a nuclear bomb. And that's when I start really relating to you. (laughs) Because I am really drawn to, I'm drawn sort of aesthetically to really dark stuff. I, I love watching really depressing documentaries and thinking about like Germans in 1930s and how they let the Holocaust happen and it's, I don't even know if it's like a defense mechanism to sort of smile when I talk about it, but I, I find all that stuff fascinating and I kind of, I want to live there a good chunk of the time. We could go down the William James six soul religion rabbit hole, but we don't have to do that. I know you're familiar with that, but let's not, uh, let's not show off uh, on the podcast. So, but I love this idea of like trying to contextualize the Sermon on the Mount in a world with napalm, nuclear weapons, even I would I would throw in totally. the sort of the failure of the white evangelicalism. Totally. So I don't know. I just wanted to get you to talk a little bit about putting putting those words into our modern context. And I don't know. For me, it's struggling to believe them, maybe, or, or something along those lines. 
Totally. So, so that song was, was a bit of like a composition experiment. The, the music to that, which I don't know if you'll play the clip, but if people can listen to it, the music is darker, you know, it's, it's minor. There's a lot of chromatic keys, a lot of minor keys, and it resolves only in the last chord, but in kind of an unsettling way. Hmm. Well, let's, let's play a clip right now. I believed you But I lost my way On a foggy day And I would have called quits But then I heard it You said the lilies are prettier than Solomon I don't gotta worry about tomorrow And the little birds, they don't ever, ever work I don't gotta worry about tomorrow Even in a bomb or a nuclear bomb I don't worry about tomorrow And if the lilies are prettier than Solomon I don't gotta worry about it I recall That's the chorus, and the verses are a little brighter. The verse lyrics are, I recall brightness, I believed you, but then I lost my way on a cloudy day. You said the lilies were pretty. There's another lyric in there or something. But it's it's meant to go from this, this like, memory of, like, oh, yeah, I remember when I really believed this wholeheartedly, and that was very, that was nice. You know, that was kind of a, you know, the chords are bright, and I was just very settled. It's like you know where the one is, you know. And then this, it changes keys, it's an inversion, essentially. It goes from D major to D minor. And th- that's actually meant to be, if there is a message, the message is meant to be, there's actually, I-, I am feeling, and I think often there's extreme dissonance with that particular teaching of Jesus and that degree of trust to which he calls us to. I feel that dissonance, and I'm trying to put the dissonance in the chords. And then the dissonance is those lyrics, nuclear bomb or napalm, like... Don't we get incinerated? Like, is there any hope beyond like, and and these tools are in the hands of people like those people have that power, you know? So it's kind of just, it's, it's really raising the question and not sewing it up, you know, again, with the record, it was, it was meant to kind of try to be these snapshots of these moments of tenderness and longing. And I mean, that's such a hard, it's, it's so beautiful though. It's so, it's something we attract to and something that also, I just can't help but read that. Just feel like he's speaking directly to me like that. Only that can bear up. Actually, only that message can bear up under napalm and nuclear bomb and the failure of church and everything. But, but what other message do we have? It's like, and I'm, and I'm caught there. It's hard. Like if I wanted to be really calculating about it and not aspirational, I might say something like, those teachings of Jesus in the here and now in most instances are definitely true. Like it's actually the, it's really the moral of like most of our great art is that, you know, the kind of stuff we tend to go after the status, the goods, you know, the dominating our enemies or whatever does not work. It does not lead to human flourishing and to be less anxious about those things is good, especially, you know, reading that from a fairly wealthy materialistic society like our own. If I want to take them all the way to their extreme, it's like, well, maybe, like, hopefully, 
there is something after people are incinerated by napalm, nuclear bombs, or just waste away in a shitty nursing home because their kids don't care about them, or the eventual heat death of the universe. I mean, however you want to, wherever you want to go with that, <laughs> yeah. like hopefully there is yeah. something else where it is true in a, in like a more robust sense. Uh, but it's certainly not yeah. true in any kind of final way in this life. That is kind of, that is actually, yeah. I was saying if I was being cynical, but that's just me. That's actually how I think of it. That it is, it is true in a kind <laughs> of like a, in a Pixar, like the moral of the story of those Pixar movies is accurate, generally speaking. Like, life is better following this to to a degree. But then there's the part right. of me that, like you, totally. wants to believe it all the way. I want it to be eternally yeah. true. And it might be. And, I, and I'll find that out later, if it is eternally true, and I sure hope it is. I just recently watched Gandhi. The very white Ben Kingsley as, as Gandhi. He is actually very good in the film, though. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. Well, I, I think it's it's like if there's any dissonance, what what I've really come to believe, it's it's not necessarily with the message or the word itself or even our lived experience. It's it's that we are unwilling to actually stake everything mm. on that. There's a scene in the movie where he's he's performing a hunger strike because there was of all these huge demonstrations and riots that the millions of Indians were performing, it was amazing that there was only one instance, one small instance of violence. And he was so upset about it. And so like, this is not the way that he called off all the good marches and protests, but they weren't stopping. So he goes on hunger strike saying, I'm not going to eat until you stop. And so it it had been weeks, maybe months since he had anything. And he's in the movie. I don't know if he actually said this. I think he did because it was a quote at the end of the movie, but he's on, kind of his bed really frail. And one of his nurses says like, how do you do this? Like, how do you keep going? And he just says, isn't it amazing that after all these years and all these generations and all these civilizations, truth and love always win at the time evil seems invincible, but every, every dictator passes away, every nation passes away. And when I think of that, I I think I, I only want to do things God's way. I only, I only want to do things that, and, and, and when it's said from somebody who lives that life and ultimately, you know, I see Christ as, as that person who goes all the way. Yeah. It's shattering really. And it, and it's, it's an amazing that we have these people who, who are willing to do that and have the kind of, you know, I would say even someone less dramatic, but you know, like a Mr. Rogers, like a Dorothy Day, like a, Mother Teresa. I mean, you just, these are all Christians, but you know, it's like there, there is very, there's real evidence. I don't think it's just purely intellectual yeah. is what I'm trying to say. I, I just think um, it's, it's hard to get to the place where the evidence is, um, is in our bones requires us to go through a lot of pain that I think few of us are willing to go through. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think to the extent that we are able to, follow the lead of these heroes, which is what they are. And there's a reason that we know all those names because there aren't that many of them. Right. Yeah. But to the extent it's, it's not like uh, it sometimes can feel like, well, if you're not perfect, if you're not sort of all the way there, what's the point of trying, you know, it, the Mm -hmm. lukewarm gets spit out of God's mouth is often quoted in evangelical settings to, to sort of have that, effect. I have a lot, okay. I have a lot of 
a lot of trains of thought here that I'm going to try and bring into the station at the same time. But it's actually like, in my mind, a directionality thing that it's like, which way are you pointed? Mm. And if you get 5% of what Gandhi was doing to that extent, you will find that the result of that 5% makes you more convinced of the rightness of the overall Gandhi project. Yeah. You'll, pursuit, you do yeah. get evidence as you yeah. go, right? You get sort of confirmation yeah. as you go. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's because God is real. And so when we start to <laughs> do yeah. things God's way, like we, we have a ability to, to see that we're doing that. Mm. It can be overwhelming though, sometimes to think about these, these heroic lives. And, and I think it's also even, I don't know, maybe a sign of maturity to, acknowledge that I won't have one like that. Like I used to think that Mm. I should just muster all the strength possible to have one. And now I think some of that Mm. was maybe like a little bit of a Messiah martyrdom complex. And it might be better Mm. to acknowledge that I'm not going to be a hero, but to be clear about the direction I'm going. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know that part of me, that feels like a cop out. And part of me, it feels like wisdom. And I, I go back mm. and forth on that. Yeah, totally, man. No, that's a good challenge. I mean, it's all any of us can do, I think, is to is to respond to what's put in front of us in our lives. And I don't just mean personally, like our families, our friends. I mean, I mean we are living in a very, a moment that I think will be talked about for years to come. You know, this 20, 30, 40 yeah. year span. I mean, there's, um, but you're right. I, I think... I think there is a lot of self-aggrandizing also as a temptation, but, you know, I think of also the, uh, I think this is Dorothy Day who got so mad at people who would throw saint around so loosely. She's like, no, just what, just because I'm caring for the poor, just because I'm basically doing these very basic Christian things. Oh, I'm a saint now. Like, so, (laughs) so what do you, which again, these people are just, they're, they're there for, for conversations like this and really to challenge us to, I think, to our best selves. I've been noticing even just a, as I've started to do assessments as part of my psychology internship stuff, assessing clients who are culturally different than me, the type of, mm-hmm. you know, person whose friend group I would not end up hanging out with. But it mm-hmm. it feels the way that people who serve the poor, for instance, talk about their work of like it has its own kind of like intrinsic value it it argues for itself as yeah. you do it and like i did one of those assessments today with a young man who i would probably not mm. have thought to hang out with and i get to be in person with him next week uh for as part of the assessment and i'm stoked nice. i like really like this guy and it's not hard for me to now i like him Right. And, yeah. and now I'm like, oh, yeah. So I wonder, yeah. I probably would like other people, you know, who are culturally similar or something and yeah. whatever. And it's like, so I, you know, Dorothy Day is interesting. I, it would have been very interesting to be her psychologist, but she obviously found great <laughs> meaning and enjoyment advocating for and working with the poor. It's not like, like people yeah, don't yeah. keep doing stuff that they hate. Like nobody does. It's actually impossible. Mm, you know, mm-hmm, you eventually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like kill yourself or go crazy. Like 
so in in that sense, I guess I'm taking a long time to say this, but there is a real simplicity in that sense to the way of Christ or Gandhi or Buddha or whatever, where it's like you might be shocked how much you actually end up really preferring it once you start. Wow, you know, and obviously, I totally don't. Totally. I, I don't mean to say that becoming a well-paid assessment psychologist is like taking the cross of Christ. I don't mean that. I just mean the part of like engaging with someone I wouldn't have engaged with and then having those boundaries be expanded in a very natural way. I didn't do anything praiseworthy today. I won't do anything praiseworthy next week. It is easy and it is fun and it is changing my view of this guy and his friends, right? You were willing. I mean, that that's really all you brought. There was an openness to see him beyond at simply somebody who you probably wouldn't hang yes. out with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? You know, what else yeah. is there? And just that what else question that, that, you know, leaning in just a little further. I mean, it, it's even less heroic yeah, than just, that. I, I either could be open to it or I could like resign my internship, right? Like it's part of the job. You have to treat everyone well. You have to be curious yeah. about every client. Like, that you you have to have unconditional yeah. positive regard for your clients. That's a discipline of doing therapy and any kind of psychological work. And yet I'm so glad that it's a discipline because it's a good one. And it actually is a discipline that I think is quite in alignment with the teachings of Christ. But it is, I don't know, it's there's something interesting there. And I, I'm obviously having a little bit of a hard time getting language around it. I mean, this is kind of why, though, I... I really would love to just, I would love to have dinner with Donald Trump. I mean, to be quite frank, like, I just am very, very, very Mm. curious. In fact, there was, there was, there was a very prominent Republican political person that I was actually sneak attacked going to maybe have dinner with because one of my friends knows him personally and we were hanging out and he's like, oh, by the way, I invited blah, blah, blah. I hope that's okay. It ended up not happening. But at first I was very enraged. I was very, and then I was like, he's a person. Like I'm, I'm just, I, let's see if we can get past the, you know, let's see, if, let's see where we can go with this. Yeah. I'm definitely more cynical than you when it comes to politicians think, or people with likely narcissistic personality disorder. I don't know how far you get with Donald Trump, but you never know. Maybe. Well, that's the thing. And even just that, you never know it, you know, it, I think our world is in such a state that it is actually heroic to extend curiosity even to those people. Like yeah. that, I, I don't even need, it doesn't even need to be Gandhi. It doesn't need to be Jesus. It doesn't need to be, it like just simple, just suspend, suspend one's tribal identity for a second and, and just be curious. That would be enough. I, I really do think that would be enough. Yeah. You know, not to say you want to be blind, because I, I know some of these people are way smarter than me. And I, I, you know, would probably want someone like you or, you know, my our friend Josh, someone who's a lot more like, would just, you know, be able to be like, that's total, you know, because I, you know, sometimes they're they're very skilled at, at kind of pulling people into their orbit. Yeah. That's, the da- that's the danger of people like that is that the pure hearted can end up becoming pawns which is its own kind of sad thing and maybe maybe curiosity is is a function of that of that purity but but i think by and large 
I think we would do better to be more curious than to be more closed or totally. Speaking of suspending our tribal identity, we're going to take a break and suspend our conversation. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about this song Citizens, which is about suspending our tribal identity. Uh, we're also going to get into um, the role of silence and or prayer in the creative process for you. Possibilities of sort of prayer centered or devotional music as you see them going forward and, and that kind of stuff. So definitely stick with us. Just going to chat for a second here so we can get back to my conversation with John Guerra. Uh, but if you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. Patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that are not on the main feed. And most recently, we have been reacting to the fall, uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today has been putting out. Uh, the first reaction episode was me and Tony Jones. And then this last one, we brought in Gerardo Marti, who is a sociologist of religion, who is interviewed on that main podcast. And he dropped some awesome knowledge and wisdom on us. Um, so there's those those episodes, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group. It is $5 a month. Again, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And back to my chat with John Guerra. But first, I'm going to play most of his song, Citizens, uh, which we talk about when we come back. I have a heart full of questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? I'm feeling awfully foolish, spending my life on a message. I look around and I wonder ever if I heard it right. Tell me you won't make them go I need to know 
is a wolf who is ranting All of the sheep, they are clapping Promising power and protection Claiming the Christ who was killed Killed by a common consensus Everyone screaming Barabbas Trading their God for a hero Forfeiting heaven for Rome Coming to you So this song, Citizens, John, the first thing I want to do actually before we get into the lyrics is talk about the time signature here. I can't tell if it's mm-hmm. seven, eight time or 15, 16 time. Uh, do, do you know which one it is for the nerds? <laughs> I just count five. One, uh, like a slow five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. It's, so, it's 15, 16. Probably 15, then, yeah. 16. That's crazy. So it's... um. It is, it's actually an old soundtrack trick that you might know because you've done some, some music for film and, and, and we may end up getting to talk about that if we have time. But if you watch an action film or any action sequence, those are usually in cut, cut time tempos like that. They're five, four, seven, eight or whatever, because there is something about it that gets the pulse going. Something about not having oh. it be a regular 4-4 or 3-4 time signature. I don't know how to say this. <laughs> time signature is like how many beats you have before the thing starts over again in, in layman's terms. So you yeah. can – those of you now, you're going to notice it when you listen to an action film or music in an action sequence. It's an old trick and it really works. And what it does in this song is it gives it a kind of – I don't know, uh, urgency, right? It gives us a sense of urgency musically that I think just beautifully goes with the urgency of, of a lot of the, actually basically every lyric in this song. That's amazing. No, that's, I had no idea that connection, but that's, that's amazing. But does that resonate with kind of what you wanted it to be? Or were you just doing math rock and just happened to work out that way? <laughs> Yeah, no, it was just, it was all intuitive. I mean, I just came up with that piano part and something about the, where the chords changed felt to me like it just kept my attention. It kept like pushing me forward. So that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Musically, I didn't realize that it was that until I went to record it. And then I had to put the thing in, put the time signature in, in Pro Tools. And I was like, wait, why isn't the, <laughs> why isn't the metronome yeah. restarting at the right place? It's, it's like, oh, yeah, so that was but intuitive. no, I mean it, yeah. it's unsettling. But I, I, it, I was aware that five four is unsettling. You know, we don't hear yeah. songs in that, and it felt like, well, perfect. You know, that's I, I'm unsettled. You know, and I, I'm not intending there to be. Yeah, it just felt right. That's great. So there's a lot in these lyrics, a lot of parts to focus on. I, I immediately think of. The third verse, um, especially given what we talked about earlier with your own experience, your family's experience, I'm going to read the, I'm going to read these out. There's a man with a family. He has a wife and a baby. He broke the law just to save them working for three bucks an hour. Truly, you said we were equal. Everyone's heart is deceitful. 
everyone born is illegal when love is the law of the land. And that verse just, it always hits me when I hear it, um, especially that first half. I think that theologically, I'm a little bit like, I'm not exactly your target audience for, you know, making the argument from original sin or something like that. Mm. Uh, but I, I recognize the the rhetorical power of that for a lot of who your audience might be. So I love that um, artistically and rhetorically. But just the thinking, you know, any anything that gets me thinking about the immigrant experience, the refugee experience, it is so much harder than anything I've had to go through. And it aligns so seamlessly with my religious convictions as a Christian that, of course, this song, if it's getting any attention from, you know, your more establishment CCM people, I, I'm sure that they can hate it. I mean, I don't know. I, I would think <laughs> that they think you totally. are a fucking traitor. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, um, you know, I'd say there's been a lot of quiet, a lot of people have been quiet about this song and then a lot of people that haven't been so quiet about it. And, uh, it's gotten me into some funny, funny conversations. This is kind of a funny story about this song. Very brief. I was once playing on an Amy Grant cruise, actually like the old 1980s pop star, Amy Grant. She has always been very supportive of me and my music and took me on one of her cruises, me and my wife. And we were doing a set and it was going great. We had the crowd, the palm of our hands. We had a whole night. It was just us. And I thought, you know what? I'm feeling good. I'm going to play a new song. And I was like, Val, Citizens in D. And it was crickets. I, I, I mean, I finished the song and no applause. Wow. There was nothing, man. It, it was, and it was my last song. And I was, thank you so much. Complete dead room. I mean, wow. so I, it took me two years to record it and put it out. I was so like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this it was going to be so I didn't realize it was just going to have that kind of effect on certain people. people you know, people um, who obviously most of us have been to concerts and stuff, but let me just say as someone who played 800 and some odd shows, that is incredibly rare. <laughs> uh, if there are people, they clap. Like even if they don't like exactly. something, exactly. Like, this was a, statement by this a unanimous statement by what hundreds of people at least a thousand i mean the the, at least a thousand higher cruise ship was just oh my gosh and uh you know because who wants to be that person to like to start you know so i was you know i was very mindful i think i was aware of that but it was either foolhardy or it was just like who cares i um it just felt like i i needed to write it i needed to say it it's a beautiful song. The The fourth verse is very clearly about Trump. There's a wolf who is ranting, all of the sheep they're clapping, promising power and protection, claiming the Christ who was killed. Killed by a common consensus, everyone screaming Barabbas, trading their God for a hero, forfeiting heaven for Rome. Man, I mean, thank you for writing that verse. As somebody who has been you know, kind of, even though I'm not really in that world, to some degree, canary in the coal mining it, uh, it's just, it just felt good to have you put that into language um, mm. in a song. And I appreciated it. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you. Felt good to sing. Have <laughs> any, any conversations around that verse in particular, or is it, is it so radioactive and clear what it's about that like the people who, 
it would become awkward would just not bring it up with you. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, yeah, nobody really, nobody's really, a few people bring it up. I mean, a lot of people bring it up on like social media, like right. in the DMS of Instagram or Twitter or something. But I, I stopped engaging like a year ago, you know, kind of like, Oh, so Biden's not a wolf. That was one Biden's not a wolf. What about Hillary's emails? Yeah, totally. If it had been a few years earlier, that's what you would have gotten. Totally. No, totally. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm can just not respond. I, I really, especially this past year, I felt my contribution to the world, unlike you, very well-spoken, very smart, very, uh, you have a lot of things to offer the world, which is amazing. People like you. I, I feel like I have a very narrow, I don't mean this pejoratively to myself. I just feel like I have a very, I'm, I'm meant to do just a, a small thing, like a, a narrow set of things. And songs like this, I think are, are that part of that. So I, yeah. I try not to get sucked into the arguments. Um, Number one, stop buttering me up. Number two, uh, I think I think it's actually very reasonable to recognize that we don't all need to contribute every part of ourselves to yeah. the public sphere. You know, yeah. like the public sphere totally. is noisy. Yeah. And uh, there have been times where I thought I shouldn't even be doing this. I there are plenty of voices out there. And you were actually discouraged from doing this. <laughs> Our mutual friend, Josh. Yes, he. I don't know if you remember, we sat next to each other. I think it was a David Dark lecture. In uh, Festival of Faith and Writing. Okay, that's right. So that was the moment when I decided fully to to podcast. It was amazing. Was sitting on that bench next to you and Josh at the David Dark lecture. Yeah. But that whole weekend, Josh. He told you to do it. He told me. Oh, David you said, Dark told you to do it. That's oh, that's right. I asked him. You were like, and then you know, yeah. then you and Josh argued several you know there were several beers well we had been arguing and we and we yeah, actually exactly. continued we continued to argue <laughs> for months after that until i don't know i we should ask him how many episodes until he said yeah okay you probably should be podcasting it was a long totally. time it's a long time but he did eventually come around thanks josh he conceded um, but like but no i but some of those criticisms of his or worries of his were operative in my mind too you know of like there is a lot out there and do I have anything of value to bring? Am I just going to kind of spout my own opinions? What is the value of that? And I think that over time I, I did figure out, no, okay, there's like, here's a value. Here's something that I can facilitate. Here's a way I can use abilities and stuff. And I feel very comfortable doing it now, but you are obviously very good at this thing of, of putting together these concise and artistic and sort of aesthetically complex pieces and not everybody who makes records needs to have a podcast. Like that's they're they're different formats, right? Totally. Careful. Don't tell me that I don't need to have put a record out four days ago because I have a podcast. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start bristling. Uh, no, but that's also true. There is also a connection in the chorus to the stuff we were talking about earlier. And so I just want to bring this up. I need to know there's justice that it will roll in abundance and that you're building a city where we arrive as immigrants and you call us citizens and welcome us as children home. I am getting goosebumps reading those out. It is, it is the cry of my heart to use some CCM verbiage that that be the case. <laughs> I, mm. I want, I want to sing with you. I need to know, but I actually don't think I'll ever know. Not while I, 
I won't know with this brain anyway. I will only be able to hope that there will be justice rolling in abundance. I mean, do you feel, let, let me turn that into a question. Do you feel that you do or can know that there will be justice rolling in abundance, a new city where we are, uh, we are citizens that come as immigrants? I don't know. I mean, I, I do think I need to know. I mean, I think that is emotionally true. That's really as far as I go with my lyrics. Is it, does, it feel, does it feel emotionally true? And I do think when you're really wanting something badly, we don't parse those things. Knowledge and hope. And I think what we want is certainty. I think what we want is a belief that there is, there is some deeper magic, to use the C.S. Lewis term, that there is yeah. a deeper justice. We want that, desire that. And we don't want it just to be theoretically true. We want it to be absolutely true. And, and we want to, at some point, reach certainty. I think that's what we want. Um, and I think we have to make our peace with the fact that it never comes to the degree that we want it. Yeah. But I, I think there's even something in, in, there's implicit hope in that line. There's implicit hope in, in turning my attention and saying, I need to know, you know, it's like the fact that I'm in, that I am addressing God with these concerns feels implicitly hopeful to me that I, you know, the premise of which there is a God that I, I believe there is a God who is all ears for these concerns. And I'm sort of spitting back, you know, to him, what I believe I've been, what he convinced me of, you know, this is the, to talk about the first line where I said, I I'm feeling, feeling used, like almost like a, just some pawn, you know, like some, I was foolish to believe these things. I was 12 in that basement. Like, how dare you convince me that all this was true? And now, now mm. look at where we've gotten ourselves. But I, I really, I, I need to know that there's a place that things work differently. Maybe, you know, I, I, I want, I desire and hope, you know, ultimately, yeah, that hope. And it, a hope that doesn't disappoint, you know, a hope that is as real as like a hope for a child when, when they're in a womb which is a very real analogy for me at this point. I know it is for you too in, in my life, but this sort yeah. of like, you know, that's a common example in the, in that Paul uses. It's like birth pains and then the birth. It's like, it, it is very different and it's just, it is a wild, it's a wild thing to experience and to think that maybe there's a, some kind of cosmic analog is, you know, how, how can we ever know that, you know, how can we ever actually, but, but in a sense, that's kind of what we're being asked to hope for. For me, it, I feel like the best evidence or the, the times that I feel the strongest that something like that is on the horizon have to do with prayer, either while praying or times that, you know, it, it seems to me that God is sort of breaking through to me in a way that I recognize the mm. same feeling from prayer and I know that you have some thoughts around sort of the role of prayer and or silence, which for a prayerful person, silence is, you know, a kind of prayer in your creative process. So hopefully that wasn't too ham-fisted of a transition, but I, I would love to hear any thoughts you have about, about any of that. This whole record was kind of an experiment with silence that I thought would last just a few weeks and then ended up lasting 
several years through the course of when I had this studio in Chicago, had it for about three and a half years where I would arrive. And before I turned anything on in the studio, before I did anything, I would just sit until it seemed appropriate to not sit and to start. And it became something that I just really, I really relied on and really felt like, oh my gosh, this, this is kind of changing my weeks, changing my records, changing the way I make music. And so it was kind of a practice that I kind of started continuing to work on and um, prayer kind of being a function of that prayer being less uh, sort of sort of reading these books on prayer and through that experience and through kind of some more like repetitive as a castic, like Jesus prayer, just again, experiments trying, I was on vacation with Val one point a few years ago and read a book on the Jesus prayer, which is Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner started practicing that kind of, and it, it, it seemed to be a, a perceptible, observable thing that was happening. And I just continued on and off. I mean, it's not, but, you know, really thinking about art and what I was going for, at least in my experience, realizing that connect, it's a connection. It's, it's wanting to be heard. It's wanting to engage in something and engage with someone. It's like, it's very personal, even though it's very, can be very, lonely at the same time. This writer, Christian Wyman, whom you know, said, prayer is the ultimate articulation toward which all art is always tending, which is a pretty crazy thing for one of the greatest poets and writers to say. Yeah. And I think what he means by that is um, there, there's a purity in prayer that I think we're always striving for with our music and with our songs, at least ult- uh, what, what we're hoping for. That's so interesting. I'm in the middle of a documentary right now that sounds like it could not possibly be related to what you're saying, but I'm going to, I'm going to show that it is. It's called the decline of Western civilization. Part three is from 1996 and it is about gutter punks in LA. Sick. And they are basically these homeless gutter punk kids, teenagers and 20 somethings who, you know, and then they're also interviewing some of the bands around the scene and stuff. And yet, the reason the film is so good is that this filmmaker, she is able to just like present the truth and she knows what to ask. And so there's this section like 30 or 40 minutes in where she asks all the kids about their home life before this. And most of them were abused, kicked out of the home, fed beer at three years old, you know, just awful, awful lives, right? And then finding this kind of sense of community in this gutter punk, you know, avowedly just like obsessed with getting drunk and high, you know, skid row kind of life. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. her filmmaking is in a sense, it's prayerful in Mm -hmm. a sense that like, I think good prayer connects us to reality. And sometimes that is the reality of like us being silent in a room and not starting to work on something until it's time or us being silent before the universe, the God of the universe silent before all that is, but also a fact of reality is the interconnectedness of everything and everybody. And you might want to just scoff at these stupid gutter punks. Cause earlier in the film, they're like giving their philosophies of life and politics and, and they're just fucking idiots. Right. Of course. Mm-hmm. But then you get the bit about their stories and it's true. It's just mm. capital T true. And 
that's prayerful in a way. Like, yeah, totally. I, I think of that as really connecting. I think it was Heschel said prayer at its most fundamental is, is attention. We're, we're practicing paying attention and to pay attention to somebody prayerfully is to, to bring it back to that curiosity thing we were talking about earlier, to be curious about them, to even just the premise being they are worth my attention. They are worth my curiosity. So that, that is incredibly, my daughter is calling for me. She's sweet. wanting your um, attention. <laughs> she is indeed. Um, but, but I think what you're saying is the filmmaker is helping you attend to these people prayerfully, which is to say with dignity, with, yeah. with, an, with to be silent before something or someone is to kind of be vulnerable before them. It's to, to say, I'm not going to assert my self, my will, my words, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring my presence. And I think we, prayer is a way to both practice that. And then, and then, and then there's these moments when you suddenly become aware that God is present to you, you know, he's there waiting for you, you know, and it's, it, it's something hard to talk about, but it's something that you, at least in my case, spend 24 years running after. It's uh, it's exactly my experience of God being waiting there for me once I finally gave it a shot of any sort of contemplative practice. I know that's not everybody's experience, and um, yeah. it's one of the deep. It's one of the most difficult questions of my religious life is reconciling my experience with that with the lack of experience of someone like my friend Sarah Lane Ritchie, who is on the show all the time, and mm-hmm. uh, desperately once the kind of visceral experience of God that I seem to have much more easily than mm. she does and yet continues to do theological work and, and loves it. And yeah, I mean, it's called the hiddenness of God in, in a, in a theological philosophical sense. That's what the, the problem is called, but my experience is like yours and it's, you know, it's, it's been, I think you've been doing a better job from what I understand than I have with like the, the chaos that a, a one-year-old brings into those kind of rhythms. And some of that for me is a season of life thing, but that's why I was kind of interested in intrigued in you bringing it into your songwriting process, because I sort of need to figure out other ways to put it in because the yeah. old habit of like in the morning, I'll just have my coffee and read some poetry and do some silent prayer uh, which I never did every day, but I used to do it. Uh, it was times where I did it pretty regularly. Now that I, every other morning I'm caring for a baby in the morning. And if I'm not, I'm like busting my ass to get homework done. That's just not in the cards. Where can it fit in is, is a practical question that I've been kicking around. Totally. I mean, yeah, the mornings for me are still the time, you know, you can, you could be tired and still pray, you know, so I try to wake up early and that's kind of where my writing happens to is kind of in that, in that space. Hmm. It's harder with, it's very, it's very hard, but it's also can be very rich. I mean, my daughter wasn't sleeping a ton. She took her seven months to sleep longer than two hours. I don't know how your son was, but those, those evenings were very tough. There was a couple though, that were also like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to pray. Right. You know, and it was, who knows, you know, but, those are some of the more beautiful memories, at least that I have. Um, yeah. Final question for you. Do you have any thoughts, plans, intuitions about how 
to make music that is prayer centric, that is devotional. How are you thinking about that going forward? Is that a priority for you, you know, et cetera? Oh, totally. No, I think that that's really the only way I do it these days. I, I do co-writes, um, but that, that feels somewhat different. Right. For me, yeah, my music feels very much like I'm in my sweet spot when I'm in trying to, I guess, pray as I write or write as I pray. And and even the songs, sometimes songs don't feel that way, but to whatever degree I can, re- I can recognize, oh, this comes from that place. I try to pick those songs. I think my next one, I'm, I'm about 80% done, is probably a, a larger, even deeper experiment with that than even Keeper of Days was, hmm. um, which I'm even a little bit like, oh man, where's the citizens? Like, where's the, you yeah. know what? I, I just keep, you know, you always compare with what you've done before, but they all feel a little bit like, no, they just feel like my little table in my kitchen in the morning. And that's that's what I'm going for. And so I think I've maybe succeeded more than I've thought. Um, yeah. There might not be like the big banger or the the one that's like really speaking to the cultural moment or something. But right now life is very, or at least in COVID and coming out of COVID, it's quite simple. You know, I'm chasing around a one-year-old. I'm writing songs. I'm producing for people. I'm hanging out with my few friends in Austin and days are long and, and that's it. You know, and I try to wake up early to get some time to myself. Man, I w I would like to, I might have a life that is about that simple in about three years. That would be the soonest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I, <laughs> I, I want to end with a little joke here, which is just that, uh, you know, having put that record out four days ago and, and given the kind of music it is, it was funny. I just thought about starting a Havana swim club track in silence and prayer until it seems ready to start working and realizing that like, it's more of a pour yourself a rum cocktail and start working kind of a project. I don't know if you've actually heard it, but it's like, no, I haven't. It is like semi-tropical dance music. Nice. Uh, it is not, it is a very different animal. I wonder what would happen if I, if I took your approach though. Couldn't do that with a baby. Maybe one day. But. Maybe one day. John, thank you so much. What a fantastic conversation, man. I loved it. Thanks for having me, man. This is great. Can't wait to hear it and keep following along. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll obviously have a link to uh, your Spotify artist profile and cool. uh, people can find anything else by Googling you, I'm sure. Yep. Yep, exactly. Great. Thanks, Dan. Just a Blessed are the poor who have nothing to own. Blessed are the mourners who are crying alone. Blessed are the guilty who have nowhere to go. For their hearts have a road to the kingdom of God. And their souls are the songs. thanks to John for bearing his soul with me. I think we might be friends now after that conversation. I think that that did take us over the hump. And uh, next time we see each other in person, I think, I think we're going to have, we've made some progress, you know, 
Thanks to Josh Gilbert, my editor. He's available for other editing work. His email is in the show notes. Uh, check out John's music on Spotify or wherever else you listen to music. His new record, Keeper of Days, is just great. It's a great record. I'm just sitting here um, putting this episode together, you know, uh, just last, you'll hear it Monday. I'm, it's Sunday night as I put this together and I'm just feeling so good about being able to like tell people about this record and, and give you a chance to hear from John where he's coming from. I just, I know that thousands of you will feel like this really resonated with you and your experience. And that's just like an honor to be a part of that. Um, of course it starts with John putting in countless hours on writing a beautiful record. So I'm grateful for that too. Uh, Patreon.com slash Dan Coke if you would like to support the podcast and get two exclusive episodes per month plus access to the patron-only Facebook group. That link is also in the notes. And I will see you guys next week.